Welcome back in. And uh, those of you who are here our first hour know that uh, we are starting later uh, and why. And that was really due to our missions coin offering. Lots of kids participating in that, uh, which is a real blessing. But uh, thanks for your patience and indulgence on that. We're going to continue our series called Mind Games. You see that on the screen. But before I get back into that, we're very pleased to have uh, David Dorn with us uh, this morning. And David uh, is planting a church in Lincoln Park. He's planting a church in Lincoln Park along with his wife, uh, Abby. And he's been planning this for a very long time, planning it very methodically. And I know a little bit about uh, the planning because he's had the wisdom to get together with a lot of people to pick their brains. And I was one of the people with whom he got together, slim pickings on my brains for him. But nevertheless, I imparted to him uh, what we have learned in the process of planting this church. Uh, And so that's going to play very well uh, for him and for those involved in that church because this has been committed to prayer and a lot of planning before the Lord, and now they're getting to the point uh, that uh, they're looking to launch. And so David is going to come and give you just a presentation, uh, a bit about what they're planning to do, and so that we can uh, pray for them in a knowledgeable way. So come on ahead, David. Well, first thing I want to say is thank you. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to kind of interject on a Sunday morning and Get the chance to tell you what God is doing and what we're hoping he will do, what we hope you'll pray for us and partner with us in. Um, one of the things I wanted to just quickly read, Revelation 4.11. It says, You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. You know, as we think about um, church planting, I think I know this church as a church plant is a church that's committed to the gospel's advance, a church that's committed to seeing more churches planted, more disciples made. And when uh, somebody gets up here and mentions Lincoln Park, uh, you think of the kind of the, the vast array of what's in the world, and you might ask, why so close? And one of the reasons, when we, when we think of Downriver, and you think of 28,000 people in Allen Park and um, 25 in Wyandotte or 10, 11 in Melvindale and Trenton with 18, Woodhaven with 22, somewhere in there. The, the, the list gets longer and longer with these little cities that amount to, if you include the uh, closest zip codes of Detroit, the borders of southwest Detroit there below Michigan Avenue, around 600,000 people that are within miles of this building. And all of them need to be giving God Jesus Christ, glory, the way this passage describes the heavenly host giving God glory. All of them with all of their lives need to be presenting God with his worth and his glory and his praise, the the praise he's due. And as we turn to a little window of that, about 38,000 people in Lincoln Park, God started to providentially open doors. You know, that is sometimes the way, often the way Paul approached the mission. He knew what he was set out to do, but God closed doors in certain areas and, and moved him on to Macedonia, for instance, and, and he bumps into Lydia down by the riverside and, and he meets a demon-possessed girl on his way as he's preaching and he meets a jailer while he gets in prison for casting out the demon-possessed girl, right? It, it wasn't as strategic as sometimes we might describe it. And God really started to open doors for us in Lincoln Park through a number of relationships, through coaching in the school system, through Bible studies that I'd been doing over the past few years. And we saw the ethnic 
change that's gone in in the community. We saw the economic change that's happened in the community. As some of you can reflect in Downriver, there's been changes. And with those changes, gospel opportunities. And so our desire is to plant a church in Lincoln Park that saturates Lincoln Park, Michigan with the gospel and with disciple-making disciples of Christ. That's, that's what we're setting out to do, to see a church that brings the gospel, the good news, to every person in that area and, and fills it with disciple-making disciples of Christ. And really, the, the plan is not that glamorous. It's to evangelize, disciple, and commission. If you want it to be glam, a little more glamorous, make, mature, and mobilize, okay? And, and really, we're going to set about that task at, with a group of people that God has been bringing together. I'm so thankful for some of the people God's, as God has brought to us and, and try to invest our lives in making more disciples who will make more disciples. Um, as we evangelize, we're going to set out to teach people the gospel with the aim to persuade them. Not just tell them, but call them to follow Jesus Christ. And as they do, we'll connect them to more, more disciples. Discipling them will involve all of our lives, all of our lives together, even as your name reflects, community. A community that then is about pursuing the mission of Jesus Christ. Making and maturing more disciples. Planting more churches. And then commissioning is that we're going to consistently, to borrow a baseball analogy, be scouting the talent, training them up, in, in testing them regularly, and then sending them out. And we want to do that along three lines, the head, heart, and the hands. The head that they know the proper theology and doctrine, that their heart, they have the right character and affections, and that their hands, they have the right practical skills to take up the mission and lead others in taking up the mission. And we'll send them out. It's really, it's really a very simple task, but it's not an easy task. And that's why I'm here today, because we need churches, gospel-minded churches with us. Thankfully, God right now has provided over and abundantly what we could ask or think, as, as Paul told us, told the Ephesians he would, that we are not here for financial needs right now, that I'm not here with any specific budget item, but uh, perhaps the most valuable resource you could offer to us is partnering with us in prayer. Um, my email, if you have a pen, uh, maybe there's a way we could get it to you later, um, is Junior at innercity.org. So Junior at innercity.org. And we are trying to gather uh, more prayer partners. Individually, if, if the pastors here have some way that they'd like to do it with, uh, with your churches corporately, that's wonderful. I would love to help in that because prayer is the blasting cap for the gospel's advance. That's what we, we want to see a church that's word-centered, that's prayer-driven, that's indigenous, and that it's intentional. And so that what those mean is uh, word-centered means that the word of God does the work of God. Fundamentally, that's what this church is committed to. We're not here to church plant with any kind of special gimmick or anything. We want to present people with God's word and watch him work in their lives. Watch him draw them to himself. The word will do all the convicting, all the converting, and all the community building that we need. Prayer-driven is that, that, that God works in response to his people's prayer. So we want to saturate this effort in prayer. We hope you'll do that with us. Indigenous is that we want a church to be identifiably downriver and identifiably Christian. So we're going about that and, and seeing, taking up the task of, of you, some of you may shudder to think since we're children of downriver, what that looks like. But identifiably Lincoln Park and identifiably Christian. And then intentional is that, that we're living our lives 
the way Paul called Timothy to live, that, that no, no soldier gets distracted in civilian affairs, that, that Jesus is our king, and so his mission is our mission, that the, the Great Commission is our first and defining priority. And so that, that's what we're hoping God will stir up, a church that looks like that and a church that helps plant other churches like that, as I know your heartbeat is, right? Healthy churches are born pregnant. So that's what we're looking for in the future. And we're praying that you would get behind us. The ways that you can help us are by praying. You can support us by by praying, by picking up a shovel. I don't know that we have any digging projects yet, but there will be days, I'm sure, that we have something that we practically need a plumber or an electrician or something like that. Actually, graciously, God has allowed us to look at a place to meet on Tuesday morning. I'm going to go through and look. There may be days on the road where we need practical hands and help. And I hope if your pastors and your other leadership see fit that those things could be places you could help us. Um, you could share. Maybe, uh, you know, Mrs. Castle, I shouldn't call her that, but she was my third grade teacher. I forgot that. Uh, I uh, Now I just made her feel bad. Um, I, she told me that she teaches in the elementary school right near one of the neighborhoods where we've met a lot of people. Her, her letting people know in that community that there are people trying to teach them God's word, help them to follow Jesus Christ would be a huge thing. And maybe you have uh, relationships with whom you could share. And the other thing is um, I'd encourage you to model. Uh, and you might you might not think that that is something commonly suggested, but but Paul tells the, the Thessalonians that they served as a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And, and one of the ways that you could serve Resurrection Church, that's the name of the church plant by God's grace, uh, one of the ways that you could serve Resurrection Church is by faithfully digging in here and committing to making Community Bible a, a healthy, vibrant place that we can look to as, as a beacon for what gospel maturity looks like. Continue to dig deep in this community. Continue to move towards the people God's put in your lives in this building and outside this building for, for God's glory. Because, because church plants need other churches to look to, to follow after, to learn from. We, it is a body of believers in so many senses that we, we need to learn from. So please pray for us. Please support us in any ways that, that, that you can. Uh, I'm not talking financially, just like that your energy and effort share. And then uh, continue to model faithfulness here. I really appreciate the time. I hope that it was uh, within the window. But I, I just want to express my thankfulness for uh, the things that have reverberated from not just this building, but from you as people. Uh, this is the nature of work that I'm in. means that I'm not in other churches often on Sunday. Uh, so I've never been here before for a service. And I'm encouraged, even as I just bumped into people. And I, I have been encouraged in the past from what I hear. So please continue on and pray for us as we take up the same task. Because everyone will face Jesus. And, and I want it to be with joy in Lincoln Park. I want the people of Lincoln Park to see him with joy. Thank you. Well, thanks very much, David. Thanks very much for coming and for sharing your uh, heart. Thanks for your desire to see the Lord's glory extended in Lincoln Park and beyond. And as I said earlier, for the good planning that has gone into this and prayer that's gone into it. And we certainly do commit to praying for you and partnering with you in any way we can. Uh, I was looking to see if our missions coordinators are in here. Our missions, there you guys are. Hey, we're going to, I'm going to tell David to use missions at cbctrenton.com. And, of course, you can send to me directly as well, but missions at cbctrenton.com. 
And then our missions coordinators can spread out any needs you guys have or um, prayer requests that you guys have to the congregation, all right? And in addition to praying for them, and we'll alert you if there are any things that they need in their building when they get it and all of that, uh, but some of you live up that way. And uh, we have a number of people who live north of here. And if you believe that God wants you to be a part of that church plant, then let's talk about that, how we can, uh, how we could commission you to, to be a part of that. So we're not trying to get rid of you, but if that's uh, the Lord's will that you be gotten rid of, then that's, o- that's okay with us. We had people come to us in our church plant uh, like that, that uh, heard our presentation at churches, and the Lord led them to come and join us, and they were part of a nucleus. Most of them are still with us, and that was a, a great thing for us. So if you think that's the way the Lord might be working, if nothing else, if you have any attachments up there, encourage people to know about Resurrection Church. Uh, David mentioned that Julie Castle works at an elementary school in Lincoln Park. Uh, Marcy works at the same school, and Carrie works at the same school. We've got three people working at that elementary school in Lincoln Park, so you guys can be, if nothing else, promoting uh, their work to the people there, okay? So we'll be praying for you, brother. Thanks for thanks for coming. All right, our Mind Games series, and uh, we have been going through this now. This will be the eighth week in the Mind Games series. We'll take a, a few more weeks to cover uh, this, I think, very important topic of how it is that we use the faculty of thinking uh, it, about ourselves and uh, for ourselves, as the subtitle says, how to think for and about yourself. Using this faculty of reasoning, of rational thought, as God intended. And I've said to you that I believe it's an area that is neglected because our approach to growth in the Lord, our approach to sanctification, is one that uh, is externally focused very often. And so we focus on changing behavior, but we don't often get to the root that causes that behavior. And so the behavioral changes that happen are simply conformity to the group. You come into a church, you see how people act, you start acting that way. But there needs to be an analysis of the heart that motivates, and and the heart includes the thinking, the thinking that motivates how we talk and and what we do. So that if you're really, if I'm really going to get to the root of growing in Christ, it means I am going to have to get to the root of how I think. How I think about myself, how I think about God, how I think about others, and how I think about my circumstances. So in this series, we've been trying to emphasize the importance of that. And last week, uh, I talked about why, unfortunately, in Christian circles, the use of the mind, the faculty of thinking, has been deprecated. And I gave you some religious reasons that that has happened and some cultural reasons that that has happened. But then we left off... uh, I said, saying that we would talk about how we can recover the Christian mind. And I left off by saying the first thing that we can do to recover the Christian mind is this. Think antithetically. Think antithetically. Now, what do I mean by that? We've got to train ourselves to think in antitheses. An antithesis is a stark contrast. And the Bible is full of stark contrast. Absolute contrasts in many cases between light and darkness, between truth and error, between believer and unbeliever, between the church and the world, between God and Satan. And so you have all of these stark contrasts, and we need to thoroughly think in those in those terms. 
we need to think about those things that belong to the category of light and truth and God and righteousness and church and believer. And think about those categories of things that belong to the other, the antithesis of that, to darkness and to to Satan and to unrighteousness and to error. And as we train ourselves to, to think about that, then and only then can you now deal with what are sometimes called the gray areas. Sometimes as we try to think through issues and we try to make decisions about what is best, discernment that I described last week, sometimes when we do that, I've heard people over the years say, you know, those gray areas just get me. But I want to remind you that you never have gray until you first have black and white. You've got to know what black and white is thoroughly before you can see how the two mix and how now being part of the church and not being the world. The Bible presents that as one of its antitheses. And yet the church is in the world. And that creates gray areas for us. How do we interact with the world and how do we reach the world and how are we successful at evangelizing the world if we're not to be of the world system? And that dilemma is not new to us. It was a dilemma that was acknowledged by Jesus in his prayer the night before he died in John 17, saying to the Father that those that you, Father, have given me, I'm sending them out as you have sent me, and they are uh, not of the world as I am not of the world, but I am sending them into the world. So they are in the, in the world and not of the world, and that's precisely the same issue for you and, and me. But if you're going to understand how to discern what is best, being not of the world while you're living in the world, you have to start with thinking antithetically. Be thoroughly immersed in what the Bible says about these categories of righteousness and godliness and truth and light and God and church and the opposite of Satan and unrighteousness and error and and darkness. And the more we familiarize ourselves with those, then the better we are able to discern, differentiate. Remember last week, that's what discernment is. It's differentiating between things, distinguishing between things. It's the divinely given ability for us to distinguish God's ways and thoughts from all others. That's what discernment was defined as last week. If you're going to get good at that, if you're going to practice that, as Hebrews 5.14 tells us to do, then thinking in antithetically is, is the place to start. Here's another suggestion then for recovering the Christian mind. Not only think antithetically, but... Practice demonstrating the reasoning behind your conclusions. Demonstrate the reasoning behind the things that you conclude. Demonstrate the reasoning behind the things that you conclude. Practice, discipline yourself to state, even if it's just to yourself, state to yourself, why do I think that is true? Why have I come to that conclusion? Now, sometimes people come to conclusions, often people come to conclusions on faulty bases. And if those bases are not examined, then they will continue with those faulty conclusions. They're not thinking about the reasoning 
that undergirds those those conclusions. Sometimes people come to a conclusion simply because somebody told them it's true. <laughs> well, how reliable is that? And yet I've had I've had to deal with that. I've personally had to deal with that. And you have in your life too. Somebody comes to you and says, I heard this about you. Why did you do that? Now the person has already concluded, I did this. Well, how did you come to that conclusion? Because somebody told me. Well, what could possibly go wrong there? And unfortunately for me, I usually say it that way. I need to learn to say it differently. But I usually say, well, that's a surefire way to get the truth, isn't it? So pray for me on that, seriously. But you know, there is there are passages like Proverbs 18 and verse 19. Proverbs 18 and verse 19. That says, the first person to be heard seems right. Until the other man is heard. Right? So if you're going to draw a conclusion, dear friend, you don't draw a conclusion just because somebody told you that somebody said or somebody did. Right? It's contrary to the Bible. What's the basis upon which you came to that conclusion? And regularly test that. And the more you test that yourself, the less that has to be tested by other people. The less you'll find yourself then coming to other people with conclusions and then those conclusions have to be challenged and then when they're challenged, then things can go south. So think antithetically. Demonstrate the reasoning, even if in just in your own mind, behind the conclusions that you draw. And then the third thing I want to suggest to you is that you avoid, that we avoid logical fallacies. Avoid logical fallacies. And I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about examples of logical fallacies that are so common that I have several books on the very subject of reasoning and logic and logical fallacies. And these logical fallacies are so common that they're found in all of them because people do them over and over and over again. Now, to introduce the subject of logical fallacies, Let me introduce it this way, by reading to you an explanation of why fire engines are red. Why are fire engines red? Well, they have four wheels and eight men. Four plus eight is twelve. Twelve inches makes a ruler. A ruler is Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth sails the seven seas. The seven seas have fish. The fish have fins. The fins hate the Russians. The Russians are red. So fire engines are always Russian, so they're red. Well, I'm glad you're laughing. Now, there are about eight logical fallacies in that one thing, right? You jump from here to there to there to there, and you got to this. And and I'm not trying to be unkind, but have you ever talked to people where you felt like that's what you were listening to? 
You bounced from here to there to there to there, and you're trying to be kind, and you're trying to take it all in, and you're trying to listen, and then it's like, where does this plane land? Where are we going with this thing? So avoiding logical fallacies would be good for all of us, okay? So let me give you some of these common logical fallacies. One is called the misuse of analogy, misuse of analogy. And that is... You make your case by using an example that is supposed to be analogous. It's supposed to be the same in some way to what we're talking about. Now, if the analogy you use, that's what an analogy is for, if the analogy you use is actually the same in the particular way you're talking about, then you've used analogy in the right way. If you've used it in a consistent way to the thing you're comparing it to, then that's the way, that's the way you're supposed to do it. But very often, unfortunately, analogies are used and they don't enlighten by making an accurate comparison, but rather uh, they obscure truth by making an inaccurate comparison. Now, my favorite misuse of analogy of all time is Adolf Hitler. In an argument, in any political argument, and, and I'm a C-SPAN junkie, there are three people in the United States who watch C-SPAN. I'm one of the three, okay? I mentioned listening to public radio in the first hour. There are six people who listen to public radio. I'm one of the six. But when you listen to these political arguments, just listen for how many times Hitler gets invoked. Hitler did this, and that's just like what you're doing. Now, I run the risk of offending people that I should be afraid of gun owners when I say this. And we've got lots of people in our church who pack heat. And I don't think you're packing heat now. If you are packing heat, when I say this, keep it holstered, please. But it's not your best argument for anti-gun control to use Hitler. And yet Hitler gets used. Hitler did this Here's where we're going. We're going down the Hitler route. Okay? So it's an analogy that is that is used, but it's an analogy that is often forced. And a forced analogy is a misuse of analogy. Now, the Bible very much commends, and in fact, if you're going to be a Bible-believing person and live by the Bible's dictates, you're going to have to learn to make use of proper analogy. There's something in church history called the analogy of Scripture. And the idea there is that Scripture gives us, in precept or in principle, everything we need for life and godliness. And that's why 2 Corinthians 3, excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, can say that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for, and it gives us the four things it's useful for. And then verse 17 says, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, how can the Bible equip me and equip you for every good work? Here's how. Because either in precept or in principle, the Bible addresses everything. But in order for you to make application to your particular situation, you're going to have to be able to analogize what the Bible says in principle to your particular circumstance. So I was recently having a discussion with someone about church discipline. 
And the discussion that we were having involved someone who was not under church discipline. But I was using an analogy from Scripture to the case at hand. But immediately the person said, well, wait a minute. This is not a church discipline situation. I said, I know that. We're trying to use principles from the Bible analogously to the situation that we're in. And friends, you have to do that over and over and over again. Otherwise, you will not be able to have the Bible as of use to you for every good work. So one common logical fallacy is the misuse of analogy. Here's another. The faulty dilemma. Faulty dilemma or false choice. And what that is, is it presents you with only two choices, sometimes called the law of the excluded middle. There's no middle choice. These are your choices. So here's an example. Uh, Parents might be able to identify with concern about what their kids watch on TV or listen to on their iPod. You know, there's music out there that's not healthy for your kids or you to listen to. I mean, there's some really poisonous stuff, frankly. So you may be talking about that to another parent who perhaps is more laissez-faire than you are on this. Maybe they don't care as much. Or you're talking to your kid about it. So whether it's that more liberal parent or your child, the response to your concern about that might be, So what? And I'm going to give you an old illustration because I'm old. So what? I'm supposed to listen to like Lawrence Welk? Those are your choices, you understand. The only choices you have are Lawrence Welk or ACDC. Tiny bubbles or highway to hell. That's it. There's nothing in between. If we follow your route, so is that what we're supposed to do? And again, I've just recently had this done to me. So how are we? So we're supposed to handle the situation this way? As if these are the only choices that, that you have. Law of the excluded middle. Faulty dilemma. Here's another. False cause. False cause. More formally, in Latin, it's sometimes called the post-hoc fallacy. Post means after. And the full Latin phrase means this. After this, therefore, because of this. After this, therefore, because of this. I'll explain. So what it means is this. After, because something happened after something else, that thing must have been caused by the prior event. So after this, therefore, it happened because of this. Since it happened after this, it's because of this. So here's, a, here's an example. Uh, Martin Luther, now he's many, most of you know Martin Luther, started the Protestant Reformation in the year 1517. Not to be confused with Martin Luther King, who was a civil rights leader, but Martin Luther... You know, 500 years ago, and in a couple years we'll be celebrating uh, 500 years of the Protestant Reformation. But he starts in 1517, the Protestant Reformation. Now, 
when he started the Reformation, he was a Roman Catholic. He was a Roman Catholic uh, monk uh, and a priest uh, and a scholar. And he ultimately left the Roman Catholic Church. And when he left the Roman Catholic Church, after that, he got married. So after he left the Roman Catholic Church, he got married. So many Roman Catholics say this to this day about Martin Luther. The reason Martin Luther started the Reformation is because he wanted to get married. He couldn't get married as a Roman Catholic priest and uh, monk. And so he left the Roman Catholic Church and his real reason was because he wanted to get married. And what's the proof of that? He got married. So because this happened after that, this was caused because of that. That's the, that's the idea with false cause. Now, here's a more common example for us. You might be talking, and of course when you talk, it's never gossip. We know that. Let's just stipulate that. That when you talk and when you're talking to your friends, it's never gossip. Okay? It couldn't be because we're us. Okay? So I know that and you know that. So let's just stipulate that. But somehow you are talking and other people come up and you talk about these other people in negative ways. It's still not gossip, okay? I know that. But somehow all that comes up. And then in the midst of all of that, you feel it necessary now to deal with all the junk you've heard. And so you go... And you talk to somebody and you say, this is what this is what I've heard. And the person you're talking to is, is uh, wow, really? I mean, those those people haven't talked and you're just, and they're kind of flabbergasted. And then you give you say this. You say, listen, where there's smoke, what? And I just brought you a bunch of smoke. Yep, in more ways than one, I might add. I just brought you a bunch of smoke. Therefore, there must be some fire attached to that smoke. Now, is there always fire where there's smoke? Let's, you know, I'm trying to think, is there there an exception to that? I guess not. So wherever there's smoke, there's fire. But here's the false conclusion. That smoke was caused by this fire. You still got to be able to show the direct connection between those two. It's not enough for you to simply say, where there's smoke, there's fire, and I've got a bunch of smoke. So there is the false cause. Here's another. It's called begging the question. Begging the question. The idea there is there's a question that is being discussed, an answer that's being sought to a particular issue, and in discussing it, you make your case by assuming what is yet to be proved. Assuming what is yet to be proved. You haven't proven it yet, but you assume it. Now, here's an example. Um... If a reporter goes up to a a politician, here's the most famous example of begging the question. Gotcha kind of journalism. 
A reporter goes to a politician and says, when did you stop beating your wife? Well, what does that, what does that assume? That you were beating your wife. Where's the proof that I was beating my, my wife? No one supplied any. So the question assumes what is yet to be proved. I mean, another unkind one is, are you as stupid as you look? Okay? Assumed in the question is, right? And going along with that, friends, again, to think carefully, going along with that is, hear this. You can't get away. You cannot and I cannot get away with making statements about people in the form of a question. And then just say, hey, I'm just asking the question. Do you understand that statements can be made in questions? There are implied statements in questions like, when did you stop beating your wife? Does that have a statement embedded in it? So the fact that you put a question mark on the end of it does not mean that you can then make an a veiled accusation at someone and then say, I'm simply asking the question. Here's another. It's called the, uh, in Latin, the ad hominem argument, but it's the, uh, formally it means argument to the person or argument to the man. And here's uh, practically, and in street language, what it means. You're calling names. You're now attacking the individual. So in making your case, you name call. You say something unkind about the person. And that can be done by, I mean, you know, Hitler can, right? You know, Hitler did that. Hitler did what you're doing. Okay, there, that's fair. Me and Hitler are tight. So that's one way to do it, is to invoke someone or to just directly lose it and call people names. All right, just uh, just a couple of others, and we've got to quit. The slippery slope argument is used in all of these logical fallacies books because it's done over and over again, the slippery slope. And the idea is this. If you do this thing, it will inevitably lead here. The slope will inevitably lead you from here downward to there. And the key word is inevitably. Now, parents, we've got to be careful about using this with our children. You know, we, (laughs) I mean, parents get a question from the child. We just had a question from Annie last night. Can I go do this? And going doing this means going to downtown Detroit. And so immediately, if you're not careful as a parent, you start going on the slope. Downtown Detroit. She gets abducted. We can see ourselves on the news trying to explain. We're frantic about where Annie is. We've got an Amber Alert out for Annie. I mean, your mind starts going with all this. And if this happens, then you could wind up here and you could now. Is all of that true? Could any of that happen? Of course it could. 
Might it happen? Yeah, maybe. So now you've got to make a decision about that. But parents, that's the way you need to explain it to your child. If you do this, my concern is it might lead you here. But don't make an argument that says it inevitably leads you here. That's the fallacy of the slippery slope is the inevitability of it. And then lastly, uh, and there are many more of these. I can continue them next week. But lastly for today is the argument from popular opinion. Popular opinion. A logical fallacy. My position is right because it's popular. That's what popular opinion is. And one of the most dastardly ways to invoke this in personal relationships is this. I I don't know what grade I was in. I want to say third grade. But really, I was very young. The first time I remember experiencing distaste for what I'm going to say to you about a popular opinion argument. I was very young. And it's because kids start to invoke this really early in their relationships with each other. And it's this. I've got a problem with you. We're going back and forth. I'm telling you what your problem is. Sorry to point at you, Paul. I'm telling you what your problem is. And then at some point, I invoke the trump card. Here's the trump card. And I'm not the only one who thinks this. Oh, man. I mean, immediately your mind is blown. You're now having visions of like, how many people think I'm a jerk? How many people have been polled and they all check the box, Ken is a jerk? And what comeback do you have for that? I'm not the only one. Implying there's bunches of people who think this about you. Now, how did I gather that information? Again, we know it wasn't through gossip because you did it. Okay, but that aside, you're a jerk and I'm not the only one who thinks so. Now, here's the thing. If third graders did that and got over it, that'd be really cool. Friends, never do that. Never do that to someone. You got an issue with somebody, you go to them and you tell them what your issue is. And if somebody else has an issue with that person, here's what you tell them to do. Go and get it straight. Okay? That's what you do. So there are all kinds of these logical fallacies that we use in our thinking and then in our interpersonal relationships, and they harm us. They do great harm to us. I'll finish this way, and we'll continue next week. But if we're going to be people of truth then we've got to be people who care about thinking carefully about what's right, what's true, and how it's presented. The first time I ever heard a presentation on logical fallacies was at a pastor's conference, believe it or not. It was a workshop. And one of the workshop presenters had as his workshop topic, Presenting the Truth with Integrity. And he was admonishing pastors that when you get in the pulpit, you make sure that when you draw a conclusion from Scripture, when you draw any conclusion, when you make any statement, 
That you have thought that thing through thoroughly and you've avoided all of these misuses of reason and of the mind. So that what you say has integrity. Because it flows from what the scriptures say. Not some jumping off with some illogical fallacy. Now that's true of our presentation of the truth. It's true of my presentation of the truth. Lord help us to be to see it as the sacred duty that it is. But it's true in our interactions with one another as well. My last statement to you is this. Remember this, friends. Words are sacred. The words you speak are to be seen as sacred. It's a sacred duty that you have when you speak to another person. You are a person who has been commissioned and made by God to speak truth on his behalf. But you can only speak truth if you think truth. And you can only think truth if you think accurately. So avoiding these logical fallacies is a must for people of truth. Help us to do that, Lord, this week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our minds that allow us to think about you and allow us to think about ourselves and allow us to think about your world. Lord, we long for the time when our minds were unfettered by sin, unclouded by illogic when we understood you clearly and we represented you accurately. Lord, because of sin, all of us struggle to think your thoughts after you. All of us. And therefore, if we care about representing you accurately in all of our interactions, then we must be, as your word tells us, to be on our guard. And so, Lord, help us to be people who guard our hearts that include the thinking faculty. Guard then, therefore, the words that come out of the fountain of our hearts. The Lord Jesus said it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So taking you seriously and taking your truth seriously means we must take our thinking seriously. I pray, Lord, that that has been impressed upon us both today and in these prior weeks. That you would aid your people in our internal deliberations, our own thoughts in the recesses of our minds as we transact with you. Then, Lord, as that comes outward in our interactions with others, that it would reflect truth and it would accurately and, and validly and in a pleasing way reflect your character. We ask you to bring us back safely next week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.